I mean, we're surrounded by content warnings every day. Made with peanuts. Contains scenes that some viewers may find disturbing. Parental advisory, explicit content. What's generally accepted in most other walks of life seems to be the cause of great consternation, in some quarters at least, when it comes to universities. Content warnings on course materials have been in the headlines a lot recently, with so-called woke universities accused of helping to create, and I quote, a generation of snowflakes unable to cope with the complexities of life. Outrage makes for great clickbait, but is it justified? From the University of Aberdeen, I'm Laura Grant. Let's go into the headlines. Episode 4, Discontent Warning. I'm joined today by Professor Chris Collins, Head of the School of Language, Literature, Music and Visual Culture. Professor Tim Baker, who teaches the English programme at the school and whose courses have been targeted in the press for using content warnings. And Helen Wally, President of Debater, the University Student Debate Society. Welcome all. Hi, Laura. Hi. Hi. Chris and Tim, let's start with the basics. What are content warnings and are they different to trigger warnings? So, yes, content warnings are a way of letting students know what will be discussed in an upcoming class. They tend to be far more generic than what we would call trigger warnings. Trigger warnings are a term coming from psychological practice to describe people with PTSD who may have specific adverse reactions to particular material. And triggers can be anything. Someone might be triggered by a particular color or a particular environment. Whereas content warnings tend to be about the topics that we are discussing, and we try not to assume that we know what will affect our students adversely. Rather, we want to give all students a level playing field through the provision of advice about what what they're going to encounter. There seems to be quite a lot of misrepresentation about them out there. So now knowing what they are, can you tell me what they aren't? Well, what they definitely aren't are stickers on every book in the library saying, don't read this because you're going to be traumatized if you do. Um, These are subtle guidance, uh, little bits of information that tell students what we're going to be discussing in class and what they will find in the literature that they read or the artwork that they're looking at, and, and which just prepares the way for the conversation. And I'd add to that that they aren't things that we assume students will find troubling. It might be a very positive portrayal of a particular experience. So so there isn't a value judgment attached to, to these sort of warnings where we're trying to put people off. They're not used as a disincentive to engaging with material. And indeed, what one of the things that we find in, in the way in which the, the press has targeted some of this activity is that is that they will focus on things that they consider to be not worthy of a content warning. They don't object if we put in something that warns people that something is going to be very distressing. But our view is that it's not up to us to decide what a student will find distressing. So a content warning is just that. It's a note of what sorts of topics are going to come up in the class. What's the principle behind them? So so the principle behind it is to create a space in the classroom where people are prepared for the topics that we're discussing. And that advantages not just people 
who may be troubled by some of this content, but actually the entire class, because they then become aware of other members of the class and how they too might be troubled by it. So a, an important principle behind them actually is dignity, dignity of everybody in the classroom situation from the staff to the students. One of the arguments that comes up is that education should be challenging, that part of what the university experience is about is expanding your horizons and pushing your uh, knowledge or understanding into areas that you maybe haven't thought about before or experienced before. Are content warnings a barrier to that at all? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I would suggest that content warnings make it much more easy to discuss those challenging topics. We could just not discuss them. But what we do instead is we do discuss them and we prepare students for the discussion of them by telling them in advance that we're going to be discussing it. And usually there, there isn't a way of not discussing it. We're not saying that, you know, if this is something you don't want to do, you know, go don't bother coming in. These are topics that are very often core topics to the discipline that we're studying and students need to engage with it and we want them to be prepared for that discussion. Yes, and I, th I think there are two particular myths in the media coverage of this that are really harmful. One is the assumption when we are working on particular material, I work in literature, so a literary text, say, that students should already know what's contained. So if we, we put a content warning on Sophocles' Oedipus Rex for incest and murder, everyone will say, of course, all students should already know what's contained in a Greek classic, which, which I think is an extraordinarily elitist argument. But I think the other thing is that's tied with that is a lack of recognition that our students have really diverse experiences. They are not coming from, from the ether with, with no adverse experiences in life. So I think one of the things that, that you see very frequently is that content warnings are a way of getting students not to engage with the real world. And for me, one of the things they do is say, this is stuff that happens in the real world. It happens in the real world that is the classroom. So again, one of the, the kind of criticisms is that we are coddling students in some way. And you, you've kind of touched on it there. The examples that have been used to illustrate this have been things like kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson containing scenes of kidnapping. <laughs> the advice for applying content warnings is to verge on the side of caution. What's the thinking behind that? One of the things that, that we try very hard to do is not prejudge who our students are or what they'll react to. So I often provide content notes for things that I do per personally do not find troubling, that I do not particularly expect any of my students to find troubling. And yet, if one student every 10 years finds it beneficial to know in advance that we'll be talking about a particular topic, I would much prefer that that student be okay. Um, so, so I really think that if we try to be expansive, that creates a way in which we can be more inclusive. But I think one of the things with that is also that most of us who, who use these will admit that we miss things. You know, almost always we will say, if there are other issues, if you see things in the classroom that you say, next time you teach this course, you, you should... You know, it, it is a work in progress. It, it's not a perfect system, but it is it is a way to have conversations that, that we might not be able to have otherwise. I think the kidnapped example is an interesting one as well. 
I mean, that, that really illustrates Tim's point there that, you know, if somebody has experienced some kind of kidnapping situation, that's going to be pretty traumatic. I can't imagine that ever more than sort of once every 10 years are we going to have a student who's experienced that horrific thing, which thankfully doesn't happen very often. But if they have, I want them not to be shocked by that coming out in discussion uh, in a class. And OK, it's in the title of the book with Kidnapped, and that's where the, the press, understandably, have made um, a sort of humorous story out of this. And, and we, we, we accept that. We respect it. Um, but better safe than sorry. And as a university with over 130 nationalities in its community, what I might read in school and have life experience of may well be different to what someone else has read or lived. The argument that that content warnings mollycoddle students can be exploded very easily because we have a duty of care and the press and the public quite rightly will take us to task if we fail in our duty to care. If we, for instance, fail to spot um, the early signs of a student having serious mental health difficulties. This is part and parcel of that whole process. This is about creating a caring environment. What is it that we can do in that short amount of time that we have with students to really support them and to make sure that they are safe and, and supported? It's not just literature either that content warnings are applied to, is it? What's the criteria? What do they encompass and how are they applied? Well, in the School of Language, Literature, Music and Visual Culture, we, they're applied very widely across a wide range of different kinds of texts that you know, can include music, opera, film. Of course, that kind of content warning approach is, is commonplace in the film industry anyway. When, when you go to see a film in the cinema, you have a pretty clear idea of what it is going to contain uh, because of the rating that the British Board of Film Classification has given it. Helen, student voices are really important in this discussion. What's the benefit of having warnings on course materials from your perspective? I think the benefit is sort of twofold. I, as somebody who doesn't get triggered very easily, benefit from seeing content warnings because I know what we're going to be talking about in class that day. And even if I'm not triggered by, say, mentions of assault, I do have an emotional reaction to it because I am a woman and because I know if that's a topic we're going to be discussing, it's something I need to come into it with a degree of emotional energy and preparation that walking into a normal class on a Monday morning, I wouldn't necessarily dedicate to it. I also think I know for a fact that I have peers who are triggered by material like this and who, if they do not have the time to repair, it throws off their day, their week, you know, that when you're in a university setting is quite a big disruption because of how sort of tight the turnaround for everything is. And I want people I know, my classmates, my friends to be happy and safe. And if that makes them happy and safe, I definitely think that's a good thing. In terms of being coddled, I don't think anything about university coddles students. And I don't think that the content warnings coddle students either. I think that Access to information and knowledge is something that's important to make an informed decision. That's what university is for. And we at Debater have recently started 
a push to make sure that we include content warnings in our speeches as well, because we understand that it is something that is necessary to protect everybody, to make sure everybody gets the most out of it. And I think that is what the university wants, is for the students to maximise the utility of their experience. I think this makes that possible. Well, I was, I was about to ask you, uh, universities are accused of patronising young people by applying warnings. It seems to me you don't feel patronised at all. No, I, I don't feel patronised. I feel patronised by the Daily Mail saying that I feel patronised without asking me about it. I think it's a good thing to have. I think it makes us more prepared to engage in the material in front of us, engage in those themes, in those topics, and raises awareness of stuff that people might not be aware of that is triggering or upsetting that they might not have experience with before, that they should be going into that with more delicate gloves than usual. What about the argument that you don't get pre-warning in real life for situations? I think, first of all, you do, because you have on a box of almonds may contain nuts. You have allergy warnings everywhere. You have your little small text at the bottom of advertisements. You have, like you said, film ratings, specific genre delegations. You can go online and look at a very, very specific and long list of content warnings for pieces of media, uh, like films. Also, why don't we create that world? Uh, I, I listen to True Crime. My True Crime podcast that I like to listen to has started putting content warnings before their stories. And I think that is a good thing because it means that if I want to engage in some aspects of you know, the course and not others, or I want to come back to it or put more energy into it, I can. We can make that world is what I'm saying. And I think that world makes people safer, makes people happier. And so I don't see why not, you know? We're the leaders of the future as young people and having this as an example to follow, I can't see why it does anything bad. Does having a warning ever actually stop you from reading, listening to, or being exposed to, to course materials at all? Personally, course materials, no. In terms of what I engage with in my free time, in terms of what I choose to read or watch, it might, but I understand that the material is compulsory. I trust that my lecturers and my students, like my fellow students will come into it with empathy and compassion. And if I do the same, there shouldn't be an issue. Um, it's never stopped me from engaging with material, but I can understand why people would want to not engage in material if it is particularly triggering. And I think that should be something that's possible. Tell me a little bit more about how you use content warnings in a practical sense. What do you do differently? It means that I take more time to think about why the material might have that content warning, what that content warning means, and how it might affect the people around me. In law, we don't get content warnings in the way that you guys have described, but we do get them. And I think it gives me the opportunity to think about what it is I'm going to say, think about the real stories that are affected, you know, the real lives are affected by these stories. Um, because stuff in literature is, it's not just pulled out of nowhere and stuff in law isn't being made out of nothing. There's real people and real harms there. And it gives me a chance to prepare and engage in that. And also afterwards to like, make sure that I'm doing emotional aftercare, make sure that I'm looking after myself, that I've given that enough energy and I've given myself enough time to sort of recover from that and make sure that I am able to be the best possible student, basically. How does it make you feel when you read some of the negative comments that people make about 
warnings being applied? It makes me frustrated. I really wish that people who complain about this would have more empathy and put themselves in the shoes of somebody whose life is massively affected by triggering content, um, whose ability to function is affected by triggering content. And it makes me frustrated and sad because, you know, th this type of thing, like I said, it's taken for granted elsewhere. Um, I think it is just as important, if not more so, in an educational setting. And I really wish that these people would actually talk to some students instead of just kind of assuming it's an attack on free speech. Chris, a lot of the negativity is implying that the warnings can never be justified. It's something you touched on earlier, especially mm. in children's literature. This is yeah. quite an important point for you, isn't it? It is. And I think the, the assumption that any kind of literature is just sort of innocuous because it's children's literature. How could it harm anybody? We read this out to children. Fails to recognize that we're not children and that we're a university and that we're not looking at this literature at the surface level. We're, we're looking at the context in which it was written, context in which it may have been received historically, what it means today in a different environment, how all of these things manifest themselves in the work. And, uh, you know, the, the temptation to say, well, this is about circuses or puppets and, and therefore it's not about human beings completely misunderstands the whole point of art, which is to explore the, the human psyche and, and to create great emotional experiences in the people who read or watch or listen to it. Um, so I, I do feel that a lot of this argument that is directed towards us really underplays the power of art to really change people's lives. This isn't a new debate. Research on the effectiveness of content warnings varies and seems about as polarized as people's opinions on them. But ultimately, they are a tool for fostering critical thinking. What do you think would change if they weren't there? I mean, I think one of the things is is certainly for me and most of my peers is that we have taught when, when they weren't there, that, that I spent a number of years teaching without even it occurring to me that this could be be a good pedagogical tool. And what I found was certain students disengaging, certain students being unwilling to speak, certain students not coming to class because they did not feel they had been prepared. So in terms of being able to look at whether or not these are effective, I can say if my students are coming to class, if my students are engaging with the material, if, if they are thinking through it rigorously, that means it's working. And, and I genuinely believe that that is what I have seen over the past decade as, as these become more and more commonplace. The impact of them is not restricted to lecturer to student in the classroom, student to student relationships are changing as well as a result of them. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I'd like to bring Helen in as well. But but I think one of the things is is that it helps students understand that that the topics they are discussing from, from whatever sort of discipline or, or whatever sort of background, that these are things that their peers may have experienced, that they are things that they themselves might experience. Um, so I think, again, one of one of my, my criticisms of this, there are no trigger warnings in the real world, is that sometimes being able to talk about a topic in a space where the student themselves has agency over that conversation is a way to prepare for traumatic events that might happen later in life. 
And, and I think that question of agency is, is really important because one of the things that I see very frequently is this idea that all students look at content warnings as, as a sign of danger to come. And one of the things is not all students use content warnings. Some students choose to ignore them entirely because they, they do not feel that, that they are needed. Some students will read a course guide several weeks before the course begins, say, okay, I know in week three the topic we're going to discuss is one that I have to prepare myself for, but that's week three is the only week that I'm concerned about. Some students will, will look at them every week. But I think that idea that students are thus able to be more in control of their own learning is a really important one. So it, it really isn't lecturers going and saying, you must do so, it's students taking control of themselves and being aware of, of their peers. I agree. I think it makes a classroom discussion safer for everybody involved, whether you would feel a content warning is relevant to you or not. I think it increases a feeling of trust that the people around you are going to approach a delicate issue with the delicacy it deserves. And that if anybody is upset, they will be treated with compassion and not with sort of bafflement or dismissal. I think that's all incredibly important because university is a very emotionally taxing time for students. The content is very emotionally taxing. We don't need to make it harder for young people who are trying to find their place in the world to do so. Um, and I don't think that it makes anybody's learning experience so significantly worse that it, on the way, um, I don't think that it is something that is bad. I think it is a very, very good thing. And I think it means that when I walk into a discussion, I trust my peers have done the preparation. Does having content warnings allow you to skip some of the preliminary and allow you to go deeper into the issues behind it more quickly? And if the answer is no, say no. Don't, don't, don't try and give me an answer to appease me. Uh, my experience in law with content warnings is much more limited than I think it would be in literature, just because a lot of it is like, what's legislation? But when it has become particularly relevant, a course I did last semester called Gender Law and Society, um, it did allow you to skip some of the sort of basic stuff and dive into the issues more deeply. I think in some ways that's a hard question for me to answer because content warnings don't occur in a vacuum. They are part of a great raft of material that we are providing students with, discussion questions in advance, even things like course guides and syllabi. You know, so it's part of a package of how we make sure that students come into the classroom ready for a discussion. But I don't think of them as separate from the other elements of, of that process. So, so to me, saying there will be this particular topic discussed next week is no different from saying, and I want you to make sure to read chapters two and three of this particular book or wh whatever it might be. The sense I have from students is that students are here to learn and students know that they're here to learn and they don't learn well in an environment where they're thrown at thro where things are thrown at them that, that, uh, that they're not expecting. Um, and the the argument that you don't get trigger warnings in in the real world, well, you know, but I can't argue with that. It's true. There's lots of nastiness out there in the world, 
why on earth would we want to replicate that nastiness in our classroom? We can talk about it, and that's absolutely right, because the world's problems are solved by talking, but they're solved by talking calmly, not in an environment that does not give dignity to everybody contributing to, to the discussion. One last question from me. Why do we think that content warnings make people so angry? I think there's a tendency to equate the provision of content warnings with the idea of censorship, which it is not. It is the exact opposite of censorship. It's creating an environment in which we can talk about really challenging topics. Um, but I understand that, um, that, that why people would feel unhappy about censorship. We're just not doing censorship. That's not what this is. Yeah, I think that I think that people just don't understand what they are, how they work. They misinterpret them to be something more invasive than how they work in practice. And when you don't understand something, it's quite easy for that to be used to make you afraid or angry. Um, and I think that has to be the reason, because I think when you look at it properly from a more academic perspective, you can see that it is probably a good thing to have and shouldn't make anybody feel angry. And I, I think one of the things with it is if you look at the media coverage, it tends to focus on the arts and particularly literature, but but other arts and, and some on the humanities, sometimes a historian or, or something like that. It's very rare that sort of psychology studies, which will also include those, are, are targeted in, in this way. And I think part of that is a current distrust of arts education as not fitting people for the real world. And I guess one of the things that we're doing with something as simple as content warnings, but many, many other tools in, in, in our pedagogic repertoire, is we're saying this work does matter in the real world. This is part of human experience, and it is relevant to everything our students will be doing after they leave university. And I don't think we'll find a better place to finish our chat than there. I say this every week, but this has been a really interesting discussion. So thank you very much for your time. Thank, thank you, you, Laura. And thanks to you out there for listening. If you are enjoying these podcasts, please give us a like, a share or a rating if you're feeling particularly generous. I'll be back soon with another look at the stories behind the headlines. But if you just can't wait, you know what to do. Visit abdn.ac.uk slash news to find all the latest updates from the University of Aberdeen. This podcast was brought to you by the University of Aberdeen.